morning slash afternoon slash evening. Welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China Africa podcast. Broadcasting from the heart of global China Africa research, Washington DC, I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and I will be joined by the intrepid Dr. Nkemjika Kalu. Dr. Kalu, care to let us know about your itinerary for Nigeria? Oh dear heavens, I know nothing about my itinerary for Nigeria. I just know that Nigeria will be seeing me in about a month. It's really unexciting. Well, as of now. In, in the future, there's some national youth service and pseudo-military training. But um, until then, no clear plans. <laughs> All right. Um, today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, Africa Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nina Oduro, seeks to connect development workers to professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. The Africa Daily is an online communications platform that provides the most up-to-date journalistic and academic information on China-Africa relations. The form incorporated in the website also facilitates the cultural and informational exchange among the diaspora communities in major Chinese and African cities. Dear listeners, as a bizarre celebration of International Women's Day, which is to take place on March 8th, we here at Cowries and Rice are going to do a month-long examination of what it is like being an Asian woman in Africa. Why not women generally? Because Winslow thought this out rather poorly. And the pod will spend a month on being an African woman in China in the future. Anyways, this week we will have three guests to share their experience as Asian women in the NGO and entrepreneur world. Jules Shen uh, is based in Dahlberg in Senegal and previously in Kenya and has worked in nine countries on the continent since 2010. Ivana Hu of G.Marifa, am I saying that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, in Nairobi. And Eugenia Lee, who is an ethnographer, currently launching a program to train young professionals on conducting effective fieldwork abroad. Jules, Ivana, Eugenia, welcome to the pod. Thanks. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Anytime. Happy International Women's Day. Are you doing anything <laughs> special for the 8th? I can't say I'm doing anything special, Winslow. Um, since we're recording this before, I it's you know a week before. I actually have to call my mother today since it's uh, technically her birthday, which I think is kind of nice. But um, uh, an Eastern European friend of mine told me that in Russia and Eastern Europe, it's very traditional on International Women's Day to kind of treat it like a Valentine's Day for all the women in your life and bring roses to your mother and your sisters and things like this. And I'm like, we should totally do that. Like all over the world, so I, I hope that's can... actually a really cool idea. Um, I'm not sure how well that will go. Oh, I, I mean, you know, I'm in Jordan where women are still treated as um, delicate porcelain dolls, um, but I think that would be a really interesting idea for Sally to try here. To add to that, I'm a little bit cheesy. I'm the kind of person who likes to call my mom on my birthday, <laughs> um, and so. I was just planning, to, instead of giving roses, I was just planning on, you know, writing nice emails and messages to the amazing network of women in my life. Um, so I would probably call my mom up again and also uh, send emails to my friends all over the world. Man, that, that, 
That's beautiful. Dr. Kalu, are you doing anything in solidarity with your sisters? I'm going to be the lamest of all of us, and the answer to that is probably no. I'll wake up and say <laughs> hi to my sister. Um, if my mother calls, I'll take her call. That sounds terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm not usually one for um, a lot of, like, scheduled celebration. I, I appreciate spontaneous celebrations more. But, uh -huh. you know, I imagine I'll send an email or tweet something. Oh, that that's that's great. I mean, so International Women's Day, I'm pretty sure, started as sort of a, a labor holiday for New York garment workers. In China, it was it's a, it's like a it's taken sort of seriously as a labor holiday, and and uh, women either get a half day off work or, or they get a free lunch because they you know they work so hard for the nation. But it's not a Valentine's Day. So the first Women's Day in China, um, I was dating my 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 now wife. And I, you know, I thought it was basically Valentine's Day, which is, you know, terrible and, you know, uh, you know, male gaze and, and objectifying women. But that's what I thought it was. So I got this nice suit, got flowers. I met her at her, had her job to pick her up for a nice dinner. And she saw me and she's like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, it's International Women's Day, baby. And she just died laughing. Uh, I don't know why she <laughs> stayed with me after that, but she did. Uh, all right. Each of you, could, could you tell us a bit about what you're up to and, and how, you, how you know each other? Yeah, I can start. <laughs> uh, group calls are funny because I never know who wants to talk and I always want to avoid talking with her people. Um, but anyway, oh, actually, I'm so sorry. Hang on one second. All right, somebody else talk. Okay. Uh, okay, so um, I met Eugenia actually at uh, one of our real, our mutual friends Charlene's birthday party, and um, I, and I met her there, and I and then we started hanging out, and then when I and then I went, I had to come back to the states to hand in my thesis, and then after that I went back to Nairobi, and but I didn't have a place to stay, so Eugenia was nice enough to let me crash on her couch for a month. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed it, by the way. It was a lot of fun being your roommate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. And and what are you guys up to besides staying at each other's places for free? It's <laughs> <laughs> only sharing economy, Winslow. Come on. It's going to be great. Um, I guess uh, I, I work as a consultant or a strategy consultant in the development space, but um, I think relative to the topic of, of this story and, and this particular topic today, I'd be really interested in hearing a little bit more about the life backgrounds of everyone because I, I feel like um, being born in China but then uh, moving very, very young when I was about three to the U.S. and then living in five states um, has informed a lot of my path today and the sort of moving around all the time and, and seeing many different things. So I, I wonder if that might be a common thread among this group here. Yeah, um, I, I think, Jules, you, you make a really good point. And, you know, we had talked about this earlier, but um, I feel like having been a child of Taiwanese immigrants and sort of being the first to be raised here in the U.S., I really had the chance to sort of see a lot of different things and step between a lot of different cultures and worlds and you know different viewpoints and that really has been such a big part of who I am um, 
And so, you know, I think our, our life backgrounds really contributed even to how we ended up in Nairobi and our willingness to live there for so many years. Yeah, I definitely um, can I, can identify with the moving around part. Um, I was born in China and then moved around in China a lot as well. Um, and then I and then we moved to Italy for a long time. And then and then I spent a lot of time in in France. Um, and then when I was nine, we moved to Ohio, and um, and then I moved to Chicago. But this entire time, I was uh, so both of my parents were professors, and so I grew up and I we moved from like one campus to another. And because of that, I was always surrounded by a lot of international students. And that uh, really made me think about, you know, the world that's outside of America, which it's very easy to um, to kind of ignore that. Um, I mean, the place that we moved to in, in Ohio is 96% white. And so I knew that after college, I wanted to get out. I wanted to live in some other countries before going back to the States. Wow. I... I, I didn't quite realize just how sort of similar your, your backgrounds are, and, and, and I find it so interesting that all of you are, are entering this sort of, a, a, um, I don't know, nonprofit, NGO, development world um, to, together, but, but that, that, that's perfect. Uh, all right, dear listeners, in this episode, we, we want to discuss a topic that almost never comes up in, uh, in the China-Africa discussion. Uh, gender, race, and, and perception. And by discuss, we mean that I will clumsily ask questions about race, class, and gender, and we can throw intersectionality in there too. We've broached these topics before, but we wanted to get a really meaty discussion involving as many voices as we could find. And to that end, we actually have Asian women on, on the podcast. So let's get to it. Um, so we, we, we kind of touched a, a, upon it a, a little bit. Um, do I, I was going to ask, would you kindly tell us about your backgrounds? Do you want to skip that to the next question, or do you want to, to go um, deeper into that? Well, the one thing I would say, Winslow, is that I'm I'm actually kind of not surprised at our, our mutual backgrounds because, you know, like, I, I think people's motivations, like, in, in some way where you're going it does come from uh, where you've been and where you've come from. And I, I think, at least for me personally, I don't want to speak for you guys, um, but the story of like development and international like stuff coming together is very much the story of my family, right? Like, um, my my grandmother's right. Um, and so I'm thinking of my paternal grandmother in particular. Like, uh, was not um, was not allowed to be educated. She was effectively um, sort of sold into a sort of servitude for her arranged marriage, where she was like a servant in the household of this uh, richer bourgeois family that, like, you know, um, that was much uh, better off than her family that would never be able to afford a dowry for her. So um, she actually served as, a, you know, cook and, you know, cleaner as a child, like, in this household for the privilege of being able to, to marry, like, uh, the younger son who would not stand to inherit anything in the household. And then history happened, right? So cultural revolution. Um, all sorts of crazy upheaval and, and lots of trauma in my family, actually. But um, I, I think what motivates me to like be doing work on uh, what I fundamentally think of 
social justice as well as economic opportunity is because I, I think the story of development is the story of my family, right? And so that's, uh, that's kind of part of it for me. Jules, I think that's such a wonderful story. Um, and I actually feel similarly. I think a lot of what has really driven me in my work is the sort of very personal and very uh, visceral mission that I feel. Um, you know, my, my family's actually from Taiwan, so we've lived in Taiwan for a very long time, um, probably hundreds of years. And anyway, uh, my parents grew up poor, and my father was a, a sponsored child in school, um, which is always funny to hear about things from that perspective, by the way, because he has no idea who is sponsoring him. He just recalls getting gifts and writing letters in Chinese, and um, I don't know if those letters actually ever went to the so-called sponsors. Um, but I think a lot about things like that, like access to opportunity and um, sort of how we're all in a bit of a, a birth lottery, uh, but how do we even the odds a little bit for people who did who kind of got the, the short end of the stick, I guess you could put it. And so a lot of what's really motivated me is also this idea that, well, you know, honestly, my parents moved to the U.S. at exactly the right time. Um, it was timing and circumstance, but even after they went to the U.S., they were working three jobs a day for, you know, the first few years of my life. And, you know, uh, that access to opportunity, however you want to interpret that, can make all the difference for people. Ivana, or do you want to yeah. go ahead? Um, yeah, I think I, it's kind of a similar story that my mom always wanted to achieve, you know, the American dream. Ultimately, she didn't see much future. So both, both of my parents come from a very poor background. Um, they, they're from the uh, Nolte countryside. And, they, and, and once I was born, they realized that, they, that China wasn't like a great place for me to grow up in. And so they wanted to get to the U.S., but... At the time, there was a quota, and it was extremely hard to get a visa. And it didn't really help that my dad at the time was working, and my mom were both working on national security um, projects uh, because, they're, because they were chemists. And so getting that exit visa took us about three or four years. And I just remember going to all these meetings and my parents really trying to get to the U.S., and ultimately, ultimately they had to settle to a different country and then they're like well maybe we can do like one year fellowship here and then um, from this country it'd be easier to get a visa you know to the US and things like that and so I saw all the all those struggles and um, and by the time we went to the states when I was nine um, I, my parents essentially had to start at the bottom uh, my family was making twenty thousand dollars in total um, every year so that wasn't a lot of money, and because we were in the U.S., my parents' advanced degrees were, um, they were not recognized, and so I saw my mom having to go back and get her master's again and her Ph.D., and she actually just got her MBA two years ago um, in, in her late 40s. And I think all that struggles really resonated in me in a sense that it pushed me to work a lot harder and uh, to appreciate things more. And I think that's what really draws me to, I mean, this sounds really cliche, but that's what really draws me to people in developing markets, especially in Africa. 
And I think um, working in development, right? Um, I don't want to oversell this because I, you know, I I can't have the experience of having actually grown up, uh, you know, in in a developing country because we we moved when I was three. Um, but at the same time, I, I think there is something resonant about all of us coming from uh, Chinese immigrant backgrounds, which uh, you know, typically in the in the U.S., um, do not necessarily start out at a an even point on the economic ladder, right? So I think um, all of us probably saw our parents struggling. My, my parents, uh, you know, uh, did their graduate studies in the U.S. as well and were working restaurant jobs and, you know, delivering yeah. pizzas and stuff in order to, to keep us going. And I think um, that kind of empathy being represented in work can be uh, a strength to draw from to say, you know, let's not let's not lionize these issues and romanticize like lack of economic opportunity. Um, but let's also like really respect the importance and the significance of it. Right. And what it means to people day to day without, without, I, I'm very conscious of trying not to other people. Right. And by other, I mean like the anthropological sense of the term or whatever, but I, <laughs> I was just going to ask you to clarify what that meant. <laughs> right. But, um, but I, I think there is this tendency in, um, the development world uh, that's been very like snarkily called out on on uh, blogs like stuff expat aid workers like right, which might be my recommendation. Although we'll we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> or there's like a Tumblr called like Girl Goes to Africa, which is like a bunch of pictures of uh, what are probably uh, college students or something, right? Like white American girls like crowded by like. Um, African children. children. Yeah. The funny and, thing is, we know someone from Nairobi on that blog too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes right, and I think like on some level, like there's no way to escape that with race, right? Because it's so visible. But I think all of us are probably really conscious of that, and so like I, I don't know. I found the topic um, of like today's discussion and and some of these conversation is really interesting because it, it gets to the heart of these things that are hard to talk about, but that um, should be talked about and that, you know, there is an underlying reality. And I think it's common that it's personal as well as more conceptual and political for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's also really interesting just because um, there is that, I mean, like I've noticed throughout this entire podcast that we, that uh, we are described as as Asian, whereas I think a lot of us would say if you ask us who we are, I think we would say we're Asian Americans. Uh, I don't want to talk for Eugenia or Jules, but um, I typically say that I am Asian American, and, and and partly it's because while a lot of people they have a very, I mean, they're they're they grew up where like their parents reinforce that like Asian part of their culture a lot, while they're um, when they're growing up or um, yeah, but like, you know, my, my parents really, they didn't have the time to, they, I mean, they were just not home, they, they, they were not home a lot. And so, and my, and my mom is extremely, extremely Western. And so for me, that Asian thread sort of got lost in high school and especially in college where like, I didn't, I didn't speak Chinese for like, you know, two years. Um, and Nairobi and being in Africa has really made me re-examine who I am identity-wise. And uh, just because sort of 
forced on you and that you have to confront it. Wow. Well, Dr. Kalu, do you, do you want to get the, the second question in here? Um, I think we've kind of, we've kind of jumped into that question. So I'm going to, um, I will actually ask the second question, but also build on it. Um, and the, the, so we've talked a little bit about your background and how that's affected, um, your, your perceptions of, of what you're doing, or I guess your motivations in working in Africa. How do you think that your background affects the way that you've been perceived, um, in African countries? And on top of that, um, do you draw from your Asian, uh, I guess your 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 Asian proclivities some more, or do you draw from your American um, identity uh, more in your interactions? There, what what influences? I guess what 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 do you see in that interaction as you're set in this completely different culture? So that's um, a really interesting question. There's been some interesting discussion around that so far. And I have to say, um, when I was in the U.S., before I moved to Africa, if someone asked me what I was, um, that, that, that answer changes. But um, generally, I would actually just say, I'm Taiwanese, um, partly because I was operating under this assumption that people also understand that I'm American. Um, but that question is a little invasive in some ways, which is that someone's trying to place you and they're uncomfortable with not knowing your race, despite the fact they also know you're uh, American. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of that question, like, where are you from? No, like, where are you really from? And, you know, in the U.S., uh, I really attach that label of I'm Taiwanese. But once I moved abroad, um, I really realized that the way I looked affected the way I was perceived. So in Nairobi, it wasn't uncommon for me to meet a Kenyan who would ask, you know, where are you from? And I'd say United States. And they would say, how are you American? But you, you look Chinese. And it would almost be very difficult for people because I think there is almost some sort of perception of Americans as white. And so I felt like I was carrying my, my uh, Chinese-ness around a lot more um, in Nairobi, and I was simultaneously, I had this heightened awareness of being American because of some, the way my cultural interactions took place, but people were calling a lot more attention to my race um, also because they had a lot of trouble reconciling it. I think that's definitely been my experience too, Eugenia. I mean, you know, in terms of the politics of it, it the standard perception of American like as an identity is white, right? Um, and I very much feel American. And I, I think, um, you know, this comes up in my relationship with my parents. Like I, um, I have very American values and a very American outlook on life um, in, in many ways. But um, I think being conscious of how that identity doesn't mean white American per se, right? And um, being... Uh, being sort of uh, in a position where you suddenly have to like kind of um, be careful and be an ambassador for what that means, um, but at the same time, like conscious, like no, but I'm an individual, right? I'm not actually representative of like every single experience. <laughs> uh, and you're put on the spot because these multiple identities, like there's very very cosmopolitan circles and uh, things going on in 
in Africa, right? I've definitely been asked in the grocery store, and I'm, I'm much more conscious of this moving from an Anglophone to a Francophone environment as well, where I'm very conscious that my French is not on point. And I'm always surprised, um, but really pleasantly so, when it's like, oh, vous êtes française ou belge? And I'm like, no, I'm definitely not French or Belgian, right? But the fact that, like, hey, like, many people... Uh, are Senegalese here or, or whatever are like, no, it's plausible that you're like from these places, right? But it's it's interesting to me also how uh, the language shift becomes a different signal to place you, right? Um, I remember distinctly sort of uncomfortable situation where I was in an interview for work and sort of um, talking to a, an, a, you know, a high up official and um, the way she reacted to my colleague and I, my, my colleague is Nigerian-American, and we were in this interview, um, and probably not speaking perfect French, but I, I thought perfectly understandable French uh, with a lot of, like, sort of cognate technical terms um, that I, I thought were pretty clear. Um, and then she, she, like, was like, no, I'll, I'll bring in someone to translate. And then, you know, we, we gave up and we were like, okay, we'll just do this in English. And so we speak our, our fluent American-accented English, right? And her, her orientation toward us and I think her perception of our like educational level or like seriousness changed. Um, at least the tone seemed to change and, and my colleague and I agreed on this during the interview and I'm like, you know, that's, you know, that's interesting, right? Yeah, like you're going to get into these situations. But I think the way our different identities are so um, unique is, is really great as an opportunity, but it does emphasize that there are still these tensions and these barriers and people will try to culturally place you and, and maybe can become a little suspicious of that at times, right? Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, and just to add on to the francophone aspect of it, um, so I, I work in, uh, in Tunisia a lot, and whenever I go there, um, a lot of times, you know, they first see me and they will switch from Tunisia, which is a mix of um, Arabic, Berber, and French, into um, into proper French, and then I will start talking to them, and they're like, and they really can't place my accent whenever I speak French because it's very, um, it's like a mix of you know American, Parisian, and Italian, and 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 so for and so for them it's it's very uncomfortable because they have this huge problem with immigrants, and so they're always like, where where are you from? Like how how why do you speak the way you do? And a lot of times in business meetings, if I don't clarify, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm from the States, but I was born here and I lived here, blah, 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 uh, they really, they don't trust me as much. And so it's that connotation. And then so it's kind of uncomfortable how if, you know, if a business meeting is one hour long, the first 20 minutes, it's literally them asking me questions about my past and I have to do that in every single meeting and so that has really affected how we're, we decide to uh, run the company in North Africa um, and which is the reason why we decided on a totally different model uh, for that region. Wow. Um, oh, could, could you speak to maybe how does how does your treatment in uh, Dakar or Nairobi compare to back home, wherever home is? Uh, I, I want to sort of try and place for our audience um, the African context versus maybe the, the America's peculiar racial context. 
Um, I have a lot of thoughts around this. <laughs> uh, so back in 2010, I met this anthropologist in Nairobi, and we really talked about how do you do the work you do and make it sustainable for yourself personally. And one thing he said to me is that I didn't fully understand until I moved back full-time in 2011 um, was you have to have a really strong understanding of your background and who you are. So being in Nairobi was really surreal because sometimes it felt as though my Chineseness was being stripped away from me. Um, so Kenyans would variate between calling me white, um, whatever variation of Asian they thought I was, which over the years increasingly became Chinese as more Chinese people entered the country, um, even Mexican. And um, it really grated on me to be called white in particular because I felt like it was completely uh, taking away from even my experiences in the U.S. where there still is a fair amount of racism. So uh, we, we'd spoken earlier about this, but sort of uh, Peg, Peggy McIntosh has this amazing concept of the invisible knapsack of white privilege, which is basically things that a white person in the United States carries around with them that immediately puts them at an advantage. Whether you're a man or a woman, um, it's just simply being white. There are certain things that you don't have to ask yourself. So, for example, if you're walking through an airport security line and you get taken aside, you never have to ask yourself, is it the color of my skin? Um, you just assume it's truly a random search. So uh, her point is it's not about acknowledging just not only where, it's not about just acknowledging where others are at a disadvantage, but also recognizing how you have certain advantages that you take for granted and carry around with you. Now, I never really had an, a chance to experience this in the U.S., um, but being in Nairobi, I think, really taught me more about what it's like to carry that invisible knapsack of privilege than living in the U.S. ever did. So when I first set foot in Kenya in 2009, the thought actually crossed my mind, is this what it feels like to be white? Um, because I had access to places and people I just don't think I ever would have in, uh, in the U.S. So, you know, one example is that uh, in 2010, I used to actually shuttle between the Kibera slum and the Mathare slum every day. So I was working in Mathare, but I was actually living um, just on the edge of Kibera. And so my halfway point of the journey um, was the central business district in Nairobi. And given the length of time and traffic, I'd sometimes find myself needing to, you know, uh, have a bathroom break, stretch my legs in between, and I'd have to switch, um, you know, my public transportation uh, matatus. I'd have to switch matatus once I was in the central business district. So every now and then I'd actually run into the Hilton um, to use their bathroom. So basically, like, I'm sure you can picture this, you know, I would spend an entire day in the slums and I'd be completely dirty, covered in dust, wearing muddy shoes, and I'd be allowed to just walk inside this really nice hotel to go and go use the bathroom. And I just remember this one day where um, a Kenyan woman walked in with me and she looked like a businesswoman and she was dressed better than I was, but... Um, Something told me she wasn't really a guest, and uh, we both went up the stairs to the second story because that's where the bathrooms were, and there's a guard that stands up on the second floor um, to make sure that outsiders don't enter. 
And uh, the guard wouldn't let her through, but stepped aside for me. And I think I just had this sense of, gosh, you know, these are things I get away with. And I actually know that they knew I wasn't a guest because um, when I had to go through security to enter the Hilton, they would ask me how my day was and they would kind of joke about the fact I didn't even stay there. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was very nice of them. But I think I also, I feel like I ran into circumstances like that where I thought I'm treated better than a lot of people who are from here. And do I deserve that? Um, and it felt like because I had paler skin, um, I'm kind of accorded more privileges than I sometimes felt comfortable with. And, you know, there are obvious downsides to that, but that was something that felt like a really big contrast to me versus being in the U.S. I, I think I definitely relate to that, Eugenia, because it, there's this weird mix of, like, privilege from being perceived as foreign. Oh, all right, could 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 you guys explain privilege a little more because that this is a particular topic that that doesn't always uh, a lot of people sort of talk like they know what it means but I want our listeners to really know you know what it actually means. Sure, I mean I I think well I I think drawing on like Eugenia's story right this assumption that because you're foreign and a lighter skin in in a lot of African countries, that locates you in terms of economic position or, or ed educational background or something, right? Um, that, you know, that is going to lead to the Hilton, like, letting you use the bathroom even when you're not a guest, where that might not happen even for Kenyans in, in Kenya. And not my story, and don't, don't let me, like, ram into this, Eugenia, if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm not... <laughs> takes pay, but like I, I think it runs both ways, right? Because there's the there's the sort of um, foreigner privilege of like, oh, you're probably one of these um, people in development who's like meeting with officials or whatever, and like you know you're part of like, this weird uh, group in in these countries that have a lot of privilege to to make political and economic decisions and just exert power because that's how the world is geopolitically, right? But, there are certain countries that fund things in other parts of the world, and that's where the influence comes from, and and what does that mean? But also, I mean, I think we would all like to live in, like, multi-culti, like, cosmopolitan environments where everyone is taken for what they are and treated as individuals, but that's not how the world works, right? It's not how it works today. Um, I think it's certainly gotten better about that. Our, none of our jobs or our stories would have been possible uh, even a generation or two ago, you know, but, um, it, like, I guess another story, like, you know, how this goes both ways, um, or maybe two stories, like, one, one, I was in the grocery store recently, and I was, like, totally, like, just, like, you know, in, go grab, like, some beer or something, and this, um, this guy who is Senegalese, like, approached me and was, like, oh, hey, um, you know, you know, let's make some small talk and like, are you married? And he was definitely like trying to get my number, right? Um, and I think normally I wouldn't give that the time of day um, anywhere else, but I, I guess I felt super self-conscious in that moment of like, you know, I, I'm like representing something, but this person has treated me as an individual and is like totally like open to the idea of like dating me or something. So I'm going to 
I'm going to go along with this, right? Even Was though, it like, cute? Um, <laughs> so, not to bring in more intersectionality, right? But I'm gay, so, like... Oh, I'm God, so- why did I ask that? <laughs> Seriously, like, I, I, th- I found this very charming, right? And so I was, like, I let him down gently, and I was, like, oh, I don't have a phone with me, sorry. But, you know, that was actually kind of, like, pleasant and funny, um, in another interaction, which was like maybe my first week here, um, one of the really nice things about Dakar is that it's, it's generally super safe. And I was like walking home alone just over like a couple of blocks in my neighborhood. Um, but this was at like midnight at night, which is never something that you would like prudently ever do in Nairobi, right? Just, um, there's, uh, there's just less crime here. Um, but you know, this group of like girls that were they must have been like late teens early 20s like came up to me and they like were like ching chong you know ding dong all of this and I'm like whoa because the last time that happened to me was like probably I don't know like second grade right back in the U.S. Um, and I'm like well okay so I like you know said something in French to them or something and I was like yeah okay whatever but um but yeah, I mean, you're constantly reminded of who you are, right? And like, the treatment is going to both lead to uh, privileges that perhaps are unearned um, or that are revealing disparities, but also to these like casual stereotypes that just you know human beings have all over the world. And I, I think like you know because it invades the personal space, like you you're forced to really interrogate that because the knapsack is like very different and will suddenly change forms uh depending on where you are but like i don't know i i've become very conscious of my knapsack whatever form it's taking right yeah i think um i think i can relate to both eugenia and jules um i mean so i wasn't i mean i because i move around so much um i was constantly surrounded by white people and in high school i people didn't really say anything about it it was just kind of like they just assumed that you know, I can speak English well, and that I'm American, that I was born there. Because, um, I mean, my school was 96% white. And then I went to university in Chicago, and the first thing someone told me the first week was someone turned around, and they went, wow, you're really whitewashed. And I was like, okay, well, I, I really don't know what that, like, I don't know what that mean. And, and I wasn't offended because I, I, cause I was like, well, maybe it is because I'm more American than some of my other like Chinese international friends. Right. And I didn't really think about that, but that was always sort, sort of in the back of my head, but, but because I was so busy and and whatever, I just really didn't have time to digest that. And, um, I went back to, <laughs> Uh, France um, in the middle of uh, university and there I got called uh, mixed blood a lot Um, and I was like okay I I don't I'm too lazy to like go and like correct them whatever and I'll just accept it and I think secretly I I, I was a little bit like giddy that they thought that way Um, but actually moving to Nairobi has really forced me to get back in touch with my um, Asian heritage in the sense of like I became a lot more aware of when Chinese New Year's was and like and 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 the significance of that um, and and I think a part of it is because that identity was sort of forced onto me and I had to confront it and that was when I also started to think about well maybe this is the reason why people call me 
you know, whitewashed. And there were some days when I would, um, I worked in Kibera the, my first couple of months there uh, when I was crashing on Eugenia's couch. And a lot, and I think there were like one or two days when I came back and, and I was really upset. And Eugenia asked me, she was like, why are you upset? And I said, well, because I was walking around in the slums and then people and all these kids were like, you know, they would chase after you and they, they would go ching chong, we're like Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan, like over the place. And while it's cute and endearing the first couple of times, but like if every single time you walk to that exact same spot, they do it to you, like it wears you down. And, um, and I was complaining to her about it. And then that was when I started to realize like, wow, like I have gone very far away from my, Know, Asian heritage. I I speak to my parents in English uh, most of the time, um, and all that stuff. And then, and and now that I'm also running my own business uh, that works in emerging markets, but we have no plans on entering uh, China, or at least we didn't until you know a year ago. Um, a lot of the a lot of Chinese business people would come up to me at conferences after. Hear, hear, hearing me speak and they would ask me like why are you not going to China is it is it because you hate Chinese people and that was, like, <laughs> the logis- that was actually a a legitimate question someone asked in in front of like during the Q&A in front of 400 other people who were in the room <laughs> and I was like well and and it really shocked me um because it's not, no, because no, I don't hate Chinese people. Like I don't hate myself. Right. And, and, and I was very polite. And I, and I just said, um, well, it, I would love to go to China, but China has changed so much. I haven't been back in years. And to be frank, like the product we have right now, it just won't fit the Chinese market. Like why would I go to a country where I'm going to lose money? And but, I, I, think- I mean, mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say it, it runs in so many different directions, right? It's not, it's definitely not one group or another that's imposing the walls. It's like, because, because the structures of race are there and the structures of national and international geopolitics are there, like it, it makes a difference. Um, and I see this even in like the, the perception of China and Africa and like how other foreigners are perceiving China and Africa. Right. So like I was at, um, a bar, I was at, uh, Havana, right. Which you guys both know in, in Nairobi. And, um, and I was with a group of friends who were, uh, white Americans and, and Europeans. And, um, this, uh, Chinese guy was there and, uh, he approached us and, was was starting to speak in English, and um, you know, part, a member of the group was actually really standoffish initially, and you know, he was probably asking questions clumsily, and she was probably like, "Oh, dude, is a creep trying to pick me up or whatever," right? But then I, I switched into Mandarin with him, right? And he he was like, "So, what's your story, right? Where are you from?" And um, I, I found out that um, he was like a a reporter actually for for Xinhua, and I you know I don't want to. Uh, like, you know, get into that conversation of Xinhua's presence in Nairobi, because that's a separate conversation. But just as an individual, he had a really interesting set of experiences, right? Um, And was talking about his time spent in Angola reporting and like, um, you know, his experiences across the continent. And he was just in Nairobi for the weekend. Um, But we all impose like, 
types and assumptions and like background on each other. And that keeps us from speaking to each other as individuals, right? Like it's, you can't deny that there's sort of an Anglophone um, American uh, bubble in development in a lot of, in a lot of African, as well as I would imagine, I, I haven't worked there, but as well as in a lot of uh, Asian and Latin American countries where uh, there's stuff going on. Right. And, man, like, yeah, like it always comes up and in really awkward ways, um, but sometimes less awkward. And it's just, it's really nice though to see that nonetheless, like this isn't the universal experience, right? Like I don't think any of us would be able to do our jobs if every interaction was like this. And I think we're in a unique position and sort of a privilege um, in our jobs and, and an asset to be able to say, you know, we've, We've come from different cultures and very much experienced them, just inherently from our childhoods, but also now in our professional lives um, in uh, very different cultures across the continent. And, and that gives us some perspective, right? But that's not, that's not something I can loop up into a, a two-minute like, introduction, right? <laughs> so <laughs> those questions yeah. are that and take over 20 minutes of your business meeting. Unfortunately, if you want to talk like what's our market and, and go to market model or whatever, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's that's very apparent to me how these things encroach. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And then just going back very quickly to the privilege point that Eugenia has brought up. Um, so we Kenyans always, when I first got there, they uh, a couple of my um, colleagues they were talking to me about just like things how things work in general and they said if you get you know there and and we were crossing the street and I'm terrified of crossing streets in Nairobi because there are no stoplights and you kind of just go and she was like oh it's okay like they will stop for you and I was like why and they're like well because you're you're you're, you're white like of course they're, they're they're gonna stop for you and it wasn't and it wasn't until I got hit by a car actually the guy was on Christ. his cell phone and he was turning like two months after I got there and he hit me and the, the, the and Kenya is a very vigilante society. Um, and so, and he hit me around five, 6 PM. There was a lot of past, uh, a lot of pedestrians and they all like rushed to his car and he was trying to drive away as far as he could, but we were on one of the busiest roads gone road. And so he couldn't really go anywhere. And, and they like, and then they took him out and they said, you know, why, why did you, why did you hit her? Blah, 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 blah. And then, but then the conversation turned into, she's a Mzungu, like she's white. Why are you hitting her? Like, why, why did you hit her? And, and, and at that instant, I thought, wait, that, that should not even come into this conversation. And when I told my Kenyan colleagues this story the next day, they told me, well, it's because, you know, we think white people are worth one and a half times more than we are. Like if you hit a Kenyan person, like, oh, wow. But you can't hit, you can't hit a white person. And how would that story have been different, right? If it was transplanted into Chinatown, New York, right? And you were hit um, by someone. Exactly. And it's, whoa, whoa, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, I've actually heard that a lot too. Um, my coworkers also would say, "Oh, they're not going to hit you. You're, you know, you're Mzungu. You know, that's what they call them, Mzungus, um, white people." And you know, the implication is, "Oh, you're automatically safer because you're a Mzungu." 
But it's it's an interesting experience, right? Because you have to deal with a lot of contradictions. You're both automatically safer because you're a Mizungu, but you're also kind of more at risk in certain ways. So like people might be more likely to mug you because you're a Mizungu and they think you have money. Um, or they might be more likely to take care of you because you're a Mizungu and you have more money. <laughs> and um, I think that was actually kind of difficult for me to wrap my mind around also was the fact that how much of that could be both a disadvantage, a very a, a disadvantage you feel very keenly, and also an advantage. And um, that it's never just one thing or another. And you have to kind of switch between those depending on the context and understanding how you're impacting your environment around you and how people are responding to you. Um, I'm going to jump in real quickly and address the term Mzungu because um, when I went back to Zambia a couple years ago with the public TV station here in Nebraska, I was called Mzungu and I'm Nigerian and black. Um, and not white at all. And I was I found that really odd that they would think that I was a Muzungu, but I came to find out that the term is for foreigners in general. Um, but typically there's been more white foreigners and there's been other um, ethnicities or races of foreigners. Um, but if you're perceived as an outsider, and especially an outsider that's, um, that's perceived to have more money or a higher economic station for various reasons, American accent, or you are flushing money around, um, and you seem off of the continent, then the, the term Muzungu is used um, as a label. And so just toss that in there. Um, has the evolving China-Africa relationship affected how you're perceived? If so, please explain. If not, eh, well, next question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hmm. I think to a certain extent it has, um, I work in a private sector. I mean, I run a for-profit company and a lot of times when I'm trying to hire locals, you know, in Kenya or in, in our North, North Africa office, I, there's always, I'm always a lot more conscious about how I appear because I feel like there is that stereotype of the Chinese manager being really, um, harsh and, I mean, I don't want to, you know, and be, being harsh and um, inconsiderate where and the fact that they look down upon the local workers. And I think that has affected, I mean, like, and so usually when someone, they walk into the the interview, you can see their faces of like, oh, I thought I'm having an interview with an American because we're an American company. And then they see me. And so you can kind of see how their facial expressions sort of change. Um, and then once they, once we start talking, um, they usually make some remark like an hour later, like, oh, you're not a typical Chinese person. And, and then, and I think because of that, we try to be, we go out of our way as a company to make them feel better or to make them feel more at ease. Like we give them a lot more benefits. We are nicer to them. Um, to sort of make up for that, which I, which understandably is not, you know, the best business practice. Um, but so in that sense, yeah, it's, it's, it's combating some of the negative connotations. Um, but at the same, at the same time, on the flip side, it's the China Africa relations has paved the road for a lot of, for a lot of, uh, the stuff that we're trying to do. I mean, the, the regulations are there. Um, and I found that, 
especially when our clients are in the mining industry, it's almost easier to get those clients because then I am dealing with, it's either that I'm dealing with like the local person, but then the boss happens to be Chinese or whatever. And so it's easier in that sense. I think on on my end, little bit with my talking about the the reporter who was Chinese, um, uh, very much you know Chinese as opposed to me who who is Chinese. I'm Chinese American, right? Um, and that's that's sort of different in terms of my cultural position and and how I'm going to relate to people. Um, because I have, you know, perfect fluent American English, right, and can access conversations that uh, may not be possible or just socially are, are going to occur, um, which is different if you're not from the Anglophone world. I, you know, there's a few different things. Like, obviously, um, China's presence in Africa has increased greatly on the continent. Like, um, I can't imagine how different it was for my uncle, who is actually an electrician in, in South Africa, um, about almost two decades ago now, right? And I, I don't know what his experience was, but I, I think there's actually um, a lot more common ground, hopefully, in understanding now. But, you know, bad blood has come up, right? Like, there have been bad business practices by some of the, the Chinese businesses in Africa. Um, I think... Uh, there's a lot of mutual misunderstanding and mistrust, but there's also more of trust and uh, and common ground. So, you know, if I'm thinking about how people will greet me with Nihal, you know, because I'm a potential customer and, you know, we can interact on this basis and they want to make me feel welcome. And sure, like, that's a judgment based on how I appear, the color of my skin, and it's not getting to like the fact that I'm American, but like whatever, right? Like that's great. Um, you know, like, hey, you want to relate to other people as, you know, an individual, like great, you know? Um, and so the presence, you know, I think one common theme for all of us is like kind of how the, the deepening involvement of, of businesses individuals, people coming to Africa um, has probably made us all aware of what our identity is vis-a-vis -vis, like China versus America, right? Um, one thing that's been interesting to me is like, you know, I'm going long walk on a short tangent here, but there's this idea that China and Africa is a monolithic thing, which I think it absolutely is not, right? Like um, there's the China-Africa relationship that's like, uh, I don't know, like state-owned enterprises coming in or um, very big infrastructure deals. And there's like geopolitics behind that, that, you know, Winslow covers every week um, with Dr. Kali, right? And, and all of the implications of that. But there's also a story of individuals and, and different groups coming in for very different reasons. Like I'm, I'm never going to forget like... Um, when I was in Burundi visiting some friends of mine, I was in Bujumbura, and if I, if I could have a recommendation that wasn't like an article, I would definitely recommend this restaurant. Um, you can recommend restaurants. Restaurants are fine. Anything is fine. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Shanghai restaurant in Burundi has fantastic dumplings, and uh, we were going there to, to pick up dumplings for my, my friend's going away party. And um, I was speaking to the owner of this restaurant, and she's 
uh, Chinese. And so we were t- speaking in Mandarin and I was like, how did you, how did you get here? And I noticed she was speaking fluent, um, Karendi, um, with, um, you know, the, the employees and her team in the restaurant. And she, uh, you know, then I heard, you know, overheard her rattling off, um, some discussions with like different customers in, in English and in French, but it wasn't as fluent. And I was like, okay, so you, you speak fluent Chinese and Karendi, but like, you probably don't speak, it seems, fluent English or French. What? Like, who in the world has this combination of languages? <laughs> awesome. And so it turns out, right, and this is nothing to do with, like, big geopolitics. Like, her story is she met um, her husband, who's Burundian, who went, you know, to China uh, on an exchange program. So, like, you know, maybe we never escape the geopolitics, but, like... Um, He's, he was a foreign exchange student. They met, they fell in love, they got married, and she moved with him um, back to Burundi. And, you know, is from Beijing, but, like, doesn't think she'll go back. And she's like, my life is here now, you know, and I have my restaurant here. And, uh, you know, she's probably serving customers, though, on a regular basis who um, are a complete mix of nationalities, right, that are, that are in Burundi. So... Um, yeah, I mean, the evolving China-Africa relationship has definitely affected, like, my daily interactions, but it's not in a monolithic way, right? And the, the fact is, I think the really exciting thing about the China-Africa relationship and the potential in it is that it is representation of, like, completely new ways for people to relate, right? And obviously that can go, like, very wrong some, some of the time, um, and China is not known for being a cosmopolitan, welcoming society, right? Like, my parents' generation obviously have um, pretty deeply entrenched, like, racial views a lot of time. And unfortunately, a lot of the chatter I see, you know, when there's an article about Chinese workers getting into some conflict with um, local communities in, in uh, let's say, Ghana or, or Nigeria, and then you look at the comments on a, a Chinese uh, language, you know, website, um, really, really entrenched bad attitudes that um, are are still there. But at the same time, you get really, really um, good interactions that are built on individuals like coming to understand each other, right? And hopefully, let go of some of those things. And that's a very different model from like actual colonialism, right? Like that's not to say like power imbalances aren't there, but like it's it's just a different basis because we're in a different part of history. Um, and I like to think that, you know, hopefully the more people like Ivana and Eugenia and myself are doing business um, and, and you know, having interactions that are more one-to-one, like the more these things that come up awkwardly can fall away, right? And that's fundamentally what we're working on. Yeah, Jules, I love, I love all the stories you shared. Um, first of all, I have to say it's hard to be the person talking after you because I'm always like, oh, geez, you just put everything so eloquently. Um, but sort of your point about language, I actually really love. And I think over the years, I really paid attention to language exchange, um, which I've seen evolve a lot. So even um, I remember going to the city market in Nairobi once, and I was there and I heard someone speaking Swahili, but there was clearly an accent. And I look over, and it's this middle-aged Chinese woman haggling with the vendor, in all in Swahili. And she was she was pretty good. Like I, I think I have a pretty decent Swahili vocabulary, and she was whipping out things that I wasn't even totally 
I wasn't even totally sure what she was saying. Um, although I guess when you're not fluent in a language, sometimes you're not sure if like they're actually saying something incorrectly or you just don't know what they're saying. Um, but it was really cool to see that and, you know, how much Chinese people have entered into Nairobi and actually really learned the language and learned to communicate in ways that other foreigners I see who spend years in Nairobi never do. And, um, I think the whole language acquisition process has been really interesting and that interest in learning Mandarin also. Because once I was walking through downtown Nairobi and I suddenly heard someone go, Xiaojie. And Xiaojie um, <laughs> means miss, right? It's kind of like calling to a, to a woman. But and, just, just for our audience that might try to bust out Xiaojie in Chinese, should you use <laughs> in China? Should you use that phrase in China? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because it's actually it has a very different <coughs> significance in uh, Taiwan now. But in China, from what I understand, it's now actually very rude to say Xiaojie. Um, in Taiwan, it's still people can still do it. So okay. I actually had someone. I had a bit of a restaurant faux pas in Nairobi. I had I committed a Chinese faux pas in Nairobi at a Chinese restaurant where I called the waitress Xiaojie. And one of my friends, who is a mainlander, kind of after the waitress walked away, looked at me and she said, you know, like, I only also just learned this recently, but just so you know, it's really rude to say that now. And I just thought, oh, my gosh. And I think this happened in the last 10 years or so, right? Or has it always been that mm -hmm. way? Does anyone know? No, definitely not when I was there in, like, no, five, six oh. years ago. It was so <laughs> fine. Yeah, and then and then my mom went there like two years after me, and she was like, "Oh my gosh, I think I just called her a prostitute." <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it yeah. means prostitute now, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess Literally, I guess that's sister, right? So, Sorry, what's that? Little, it literally means little sister, though. It's, so it's it's really yeah. interesting connotations of language, even just in China, have changed, right? And Terms yeah. have appropriated in really bad ways, evidently for, for prostitution. I, I don't know, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it is really fascinating, and I actually it makes me wonder though. Uh, I guess to go back to the story, um, I thought it was a it was the accent was so good that I actually thought it was a Chinese man calling to me, um, which has increasingly happened more since um, the population has increased. Chinese men will stop me on the street just to ask me where I'm from and speak to me in Mandarin. Um, but I turned around and it was a Kenyan man waving and smiling at me. And it was amazing because he had such a great accent. Although now that we've had this discussion, I wonder um, how much some of those more, you know, uh, cultural implications behind the language will catch up in terms of what Kenyans are learning. Um, but, you know, Jules, your point about sort of this opportunity for more interaction and creating new ways of interaction, I think is also really interesting because I think um, as there's more interaction, um, certain stereotypes are shed, certain assumptions are shed, but actually I also think new ones are being created. So it's interesting to see how um, that continues to develop. So, for example... Um, you know, a lot of Chinese workers are now doing construction in Nairobi. So there's the Thika Superhighway, which has been completely amazing. Um, but a lot of stereotypical stories come out of that. So when I was working in the Mathare slum, which generally isn't really viewed as very safe, um, I my coworkers would actually let me walk around by myself. But they actually wouldn't really let any other foreigners who came to visit do that. 
And one day, one of my coworkers said to me, uh, we're okay with letting you walk through Mathare by yourself because everyone thinks you know Kung Fu. And, you know, we really joked and laughed about it. But the truth is, I remembered a few months after that, the story started going around about how some Nairobis tried to mug um, a Thika Road construction worker, and apparently he actually knew Kung Fu and beat them up. And, um, you know, with more opportunity for interaction comes more opportunity for certain stereotypes also. Uh, and I have no idea if that story is true. Actually, I've tried Googling it, finding out more information. But this is a story that people commonly tell. <laughs> That's and, a fantastic story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so I'm interested to see how more of that also uh, takes place and what kinds of urban legends come up and also where things might be clarified for others. Yeah. No, and then um, I think, Eugenia, you, you, you're talking about how everyone's sort of being more integrated or just being exposed to each other's cultures. And I think that's also very evident just through, I mean, like, observation-based, um, how many interracial couples there are between Africans and Chinese or Asians um, and by and by biracial children. Because when I first got there, they were pretty, I mean, like, they, they, they were not rare, but you wouldn't see them everywhere. But now, especially if you go to Kilimani, to Yaya Center, um, you see a lot of um, interracial couples, and they would be Asian and African. Um, and I only noticed that because at the time I was dating a Kenyan and we wouldn't really get any stares. But when uh, both of us were back here, uh, back in the States uh, for winter break last uh, this past Christmas, we actually got a lot more stares and people were acting sort of uh, uncomfortable around us because, you know, an Asian with an with an African or a black person in general is not as prevalent in in certain parts of the U.S. Wow. Yeah. Um, I find the mixing... Oh, sorry, Winslow. Were you about to say something? No. Uh, no. Go. Continue. Uh, uh, um, I was just... I guess to add to that, I do find sort of the, the interracial couple thing really interesting. Because um, even in Mathare, I haven't seen the baby, but everyone says there's a Chinese baby in Mathare. And um, one of the women had, I suppose she had a baby with a Chinese man. And uh, I always found that really interesting, partly because, you know, at the risk of personally, culturally stereotyping myself, I sometimes find um, Chinese people can be kind of racist in some ways. <laughs> that is the most adorable no, understatement yeah. of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And I feel like that's not a very PC thing to say, but I'm just going to say it. And um, that really, you know, and so I find the, the sort of interracial coupling really fascinating also because I really wondered, you know, are Chinese people going to be more segregated when they show up in, in Kenya? Are they going to really uh, be a part of the culture? I had no idea. And so we really had a chance to see some of that play out more. Um, I uh, and and just for our audience's um, uh, understanding, actually, I I don't I chi there are Chinese racist people. There's some wonderful Chinese people who <laughs> who who are either anti-racist or don't see race, whatever one you prefer. And and, and some of my best friends are Chinese. So 
<laughs> uh, you know, but it's a, it's a, a really uh, the the sort of interracial um, aspect of it is something that we can probably say for another podcast. That's something I, I find generally interesting as a foreigner married to a Chinese woman. Um, it's uh, a, a cool talk. Double question. Well, triple question. Quite many questions in one. Who is a typical foreigner in your profession, and how do you compare to him or her? And what is the one thing you want to let other Asian women know about living and working in an African country? Uh, <laughs> Eugenia, do you want to take that one? I, I can uh, jump in, but okay. I want to. Yeah, I, I could start if. Uh, <laughs> that's oh gosh, so that's that's a whole like complicated, loaded question. Who is a typical foreigner? I mean, there are just. I don't mean for this to be a cop-out answer, but I think there are just so many foreigners. That is a cop-out answer, but very Kenya. good answer. <laughs> and it's it's really, uh, it's hard to answer, um, but I think one thing that really struck me about this kind of work in general is, and this, this is changing too, but I felt like it's slightly more rare to find children of immigrants working in these fields. Um, and... You know, I, it, partly it's growing up, I think I felt some pressure for some of the more traditional markers of success, like a, a stable job in a respectable profession, working as a doctor or a lawyer, um, not working for a nonprofit and traveling around the world. Because, you know, you, you get this from all different angles. Your parents will say, what are you doing? You know, we left to come to the U.S. so we could create a better life. Um, my parents have been very supportive, by the way, but I think that's always an undertone of what you're thinking about is you're thinking, well, you know, I have the opportunity for this sort of life here in the U.S. And yet I'm just running back abroad to what, you know, a lot of people want to kind of escape or, or um, you know, pull so themselves up from. You're out of a developing country. Why are you going back to one? <laughs> What's that? We worked so hard to get you out oh. of a developing yeah. country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I I have to say, Jules, I don't know if you feel this way, but I kind of felt like having that multicultural background allowed me to be a lot more empathetic and actually um, switch between different cultures and navigate between them. Let's say bride price. Uh, bride price, and you know, for Kenyans is you know. Uh, it, it's actually kind of the opposite of a dowry, right? Which is that the man actually has to pay for the woman. Terrible. Um, <laughs> what do you mean terrible? I'm just kidding. I actually, so, but, but see, Chinese culture um, is very focused on the community and of taking care of your family, right? And what is bride price really? Bride price is you agree on a set price, um, of what you're going to give. So maybe 30 goats, two cows, whatever, whatever you, want to say I'm actually not sure what the standard bride price is um, but what does it really mean what's the real significance behind it well the significance behind it isn't that you're going to pay off the bride price it's that you're saying what's mine is yours and your parents-in-law your in-laws can get in touch with you when they also need support to say can you help me with this and um, it's kind of like this concept of sharing the wealth, right? And I think that really resonates with me because Chinese families take care of their parents. They have multi-generational households, um, things like that. And in a lot of ways, I feel like my background really allowed me to 
relate to the Kenyans that I worked with on a very personal level, um, of a personal level of acceptance and being able to relate to one another. So uh, that's how I would answer the first part of your question. And uh, the second, about what I want other Asian women to know and about living and working in an African country, I actually think this advice um, is the same advice I would give to any foreigner in general, which is just to really develop an understanding of how your presence is affecting and changing your environment and those around you. Um, so understanding yourself and where you culturally uh, situate yourself. So you want to gain fluency into understanding what are the misperceptions, stereotypes, and positive views about your race because it will affect how you do business and work with others. Um, but also have a really strong footing in the assumptions you carry with yourself that you should really be questioning. I think as Americans, we have a lot of things that we really take for granted to be moral truths that aren't really that way. So whether that's corporal punishment, uh, we could have a long discussion about that, or, or other things, um, which things are actually commonly held universal assumptions and which ones are just unique to the U.S. that you thought were universal assumptions. Um, and you really need to have a strong footing in where you're from and your own culture. As I mentioned earlier, it's really easy sometimes to feel who I am and where I'm from was really important because, you know, you're also sharing your culture with others and you're both a teacher and a student, right? That learning process and dialogue goes both ways. And so you're not just coming in and saying, oh, I'm in Kenya, you, you have to say I'm a Chinese American in Kenya. And how are people understanding me? And how am I understanding them? I think that's all really good advice, Eugenia. I mean, I mean, in my field, which is like a great hybrid that I'm, I'm very lucky to, to have the opportunity to, to be in, in both um, strategy, business consulting, and development, and you know what, whatever that means, and whatever institutions, and, and ultimately people that includes, you know, consulting in general as a profession is very cosmopolitan, and it's not uncommon in consultancies all around the world to have people of many different backgrounds, and uh, you know, life stories, and like races, and signals, and languages, and all of this. But I think it's it's particularly uh, interesting to me how the dynamics still play out, right? Um, working in working on economic development, but understanding that that's loaded with history and with race and with nationality. And so I, I hate this thing in development. That's like the perception of the owners of development are not the people who are actually going to be doing all of it and you know, the the picture uh, to me of a consultant in international development right now around the world is like perhaps like some, you know, American or European dude who's had like 20 years of experience at the World Bank and is going out like doling out economic policy advice. And that's exactly like that, that stereotype is what's wrong with like our current our current system and our current framework, right? Like, I just, I just I want to say we have friends at the World Bank and IMF, and we have no problem with them whatsoever. No, 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 no. And, like, and, and they're fantastic, and like many individuals who fit that um, profile have done wonderful work and made like great impacts, right? But 
I think like the, the automatic thinking that if you're in country X, you are actually from country Y and are best place to dole out advice to people to basically tell them how to, you know, how to run their economy is like, that's kind of messed up, right? Like, I don't know. One of the things I really like about Dahlberg, for example, is that most of our staff, most of our consulting staff, right? We don't have like international, national uh, distinctions in our salaries, which I, I think is really important, is most of our staff in the Nairobi office are Kenyan, right? We have a very strong like international contingent of Americans, Brits, whatever, Indians, Nigerian Americans. But in, in Senegal, you know, similarly, most of our consulting staff are Senegalese. And without getting too much focused on like one institution or, or one thing, I think it's really important that we have an opportunity to kind of change that perception. And in general, right, the world is coming together in new economic ways and, and whatnot and whatever. But hopefully there's a, sh- a shared set of common values underlying this and common issues that we want to work on together. And, I mean, leading to my advice for for an Asian in Africa. Asian um, woman, Asian woman, don't forget Asian, the gender. Asian <laughs> Africa, wherever they're from, right? <laughs> Don't run out into the middle of the street because you'll get hit by a car. No. Uh, <laughs> no, but seriously, right? Like, these things are real. These things matter. And I think Eugenia had great advice for uh, and, and great reflections on, on how to think about that and, and perceive that because the reality is it's there, right? You're not going to get away from it, but you have to be conscious of it and do it in ways that brings the conversation back to let's try to relate as individuals, right? Let's. Let's try to take these things for what they are and accept them and they're there. And I think being a woman in general, like in societies that have very gendered roles where you're coming from a completely different framework of how you understand gender and frankly, you know, have certain positions on women's equality that you perhaps as an individual like should not compromise on and are not going to compromise on, that's fine. But you're coming in and like you know, like the structures have their legacy of both good and bad, but you just have to be conscious of that and navigate it, right? And and try to be adept and as aware of it as possible. I think the ideal that we all get to, right? And the point of like this conversation is like, how do we relate better and understand each other better as individuals and not as like structured stereotypes, right? But the the problem is like, you can't, you can't do that just by not acknowledging them, right? Um, and you can't do that just by fighting them in one particular way or another, right? And I think it's made me personally at least grow as a person and uh, just in all facets, facets of my life, like to have the opportunity and, and the privilege of, of going into these different places around the world and experience them culturally. Um, does that mean that I'm completely culturally relativist and will bat an eye when someone says really something really disparaging about women, right? No. And similarly, like, I don't think I would tolerate, like, hearing casual racism from, uh, you know, like a Chinese guy or a, a foreigner or a white person in Africa about Africans, right? But, like, that's the best you can do, right? You're negotiating the space. And I think... Uh, I think, unfortunately, it's it's sort of a burden that perhaps, like, you wouldn't have to c- carry if you w- didn't have this intersectionality in your individual identity. But it's also a privilege, and it's a window and an access uh, point to, to have really good conversation. Wow. Is there anything else you would like to add before we go on to recommendations? I think maybe to add to that, Jules put it 
beautifully. One thing that I've personally experienced in the negotiating process is just choose your battles wisely. There will be times where you might be frustrated with sort of the difficulties in the cross-cultural communication. And I think I've, you know, I've had long conversations with Kenyans that I feel close to about why I feel uncomfortable, for example, being called white. And that's sort of a thing that you have to talk about for a long time, over many years. And um, when I first started out, I felt so frustrated by that, that I was constantly just fighting anyone who was making those stereotypes. And, you know, what I learned is that still has to take place over a long-term respectful dialogue, just as for myself, learning to get used to the certain ways that certain cultural norms that take place in Kenya, um, it works the other way. But, you know, definitely choose your battles wisely. Try to engage in more meaningful conversation with the people who matter. And the ones you don't know as well, you just can't, you can't change things with everyone you interact with. That just takes That's so right. much more time. That's right. Deep. <laughs> a, a deep and you know graduate seminar on social justice issues so cool all right let's let's hit up the recommendations you are a guest so you you go first okay so my recommendation has really not anything to do with china africa but it's this really great article written in the foreign policy um website and it's titled sorry this is a stupid pop-up that showed up um no, I don't want to register. Um, yeah, so um, it's called the Unintended Consequences of Uganda's Gay Law. Um, and it talks about how clumsy foreign policy has actually pushed the Ugandan parliament and the president to actually sign, sign a law, um, sign you know, the bill into a law. Um, three years after the law w- was actually introduced. Um, and basically the point that I was trying to make is that um, the president really had no choice but to sign it because he wanted to show the Western media and the Western governments that he's, that despite the fact that you, it's it's Uganda, um, they, they, they don't have to follow um, and they don't have to cave to the pressure of the Western government who said, if you... It, you know, if if you if you sign this bill into law, then we're going to pull all of our aid. Um, and so um, that article also reminded me a lot of you know the we talk about the Western model um, in Africa and and the Chinese model because I think the Chinese government didn't really say anything about it. Uh, they just said you know it's probably it, I don't think the Chinese government would have said if you sign this into law then I won't pull aid because that's not the kind of the Chinese model that the government well, uses. Had you gone to say, oh, we're also going to recognize Taiwan, I'm sure the Chinese model would have uh, made some, said a few things. Yes, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> All right. Okay, well, I just Googled something that I remembered I read a while ago. Uh, so, Wait, you're not, you're not recommending the restaurant? Oh, that's Jules. Who's, uh, this is oh, Eugenia God talking. Da- oh, God. This is <laughs> somewhat racist. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. So this is an article in the Standard Media, which is in Nairobi, in, in Kenya. And uh, 
It's an article called Chinese Mafia Setting Base in Nairobi. And to be honest, I don't know how true it is, but what I'm really fascinated about is the way informal economies are brought in from different cultures, right? So this article is talking about how the Chinese mafia is setting base and kind of reaching out to offer Chinese people who are living abroad protection. But also, I think, you know, their fears, it touches upon fears that they're going to set up operations for something bigger, for potential crime. And, you know, it's it's really uh, it's really fascinating. I feel like I should do more research to see if, if there have been any further articles about it. But I think, you know, one of the things we didn't really touch upon that this article made me think of, and which is why I'm suggesting it, is just we're talking about individuals a lot, but what kinds of structures and systems are also being brought in, and how is that going to interact with um, the economies in Nairobi, specifically the informal economies, which people often don't see, and I don't think people are talking about that as much um, in the context of the Chinese presence in Kenya. Um, so this is an interesting food for thought as we reflect on the future of that relationship and how it develops. Fantastic. I was wondering if it was the article talking about the Sichuanese prostitutes brought over and and who said, oh, yeah, we made so much more money in Kenya than we ever did in Sichuan. Oh, Which wow, I, no, this must be a different one. I'd love to see that, though. Oh, yeah, it's from my last... I'll, I'll find it. That 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 cracked me up. I mean, sorry, sex work. You know what? I'm just going to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Jules, how about you recommend your stuff? <laughs> so go to Shanghai Restaurant in Fujibora for all your dumpling needs when you're in Burundi. No, I mean, there are probably a few other things. So, you know, I, I have to admit, I didn't uh, prepare beyond, like, Googling during this call as well. But one thing struck me in kind of my casual reading that's come about over the, the few days. Um, so it's, it's actually two articles that I think touch on similar themes. So one is from The Guardian, and it's a, a photo essay, actually, a beautiful uh, really stark, and by beautiful I mean like ugly beautiful, like striking images from the Agbog uh, Blushi. I'm probably saying that and mangling it, um, but it's a it's a large uh, waste dump. It's the world's largest e-waste dump, according to this article, in Accra, which is where you know a lot of electronics are dumped and and probably exported as trash, um, and the people who are making their livings, especially uh, essentially working and, and trying to, to process this stuff, probably like very much to the detriment of their health, right? And um, I've been thinking a lot lately about how technology is not panacea in development and the consequences of our technological development and, and how that relates to actual economic opportunity and, and the costs that impose and who we ask to bear those costs. So that's, that's a photo series that is just really chilling and I think uh, is, is really uh, beautiful. But um, the other article linked to that, I've been following Quartz a lot, which is the Atlantic's, uh, I guess, new business site. And they have a lot more coverage of China than Africa in general. But I, I think their reporters on, on China are great. And there's this article also on um, recently, One Man's Trash, Why China is Still the Dumping Ground for the World's Electronic Refuse. So as our economies are changing, 
definitely seeing some of the issues uh, that are highlighted by the photo series from Ghana that are, are coming up for, for Chinese workers and individuals who, who are working uh, from this great manufacturing electronics industry, but who have to live with the pollution and the consequences of that. And I think pairing those two articles side by side illustrates for me, like, you know, why we're having this conversation again. Wow. Uh, Dr. Kalu? Okay. So the article I really, really want to recommend, I feel like I maybe can't, um, but I'm going to talk about it anyways. And then Winslow, you get to decide and you can chop this bit out if you don't want it. Have a backup. No, I have, I have like two other backups. Okay, so we're good. Because I wanted to get something really topical. I Googled China, Africa women. And what pulled up was an article from China Smack. Dot com and I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's essentially oh I, I'm familiar yeah, with China well, Smack. Fauna, I guess the girl that started China Smack, had gone on Tianya and translated a conversation on this um, chat site, I guess, between Chinese individuals on the growing trend of Chinese men marrying African women. And oh yeah, that's fine. That that's that's not that's not a good. Well, thing. I mean, the the real the real content here is not so much the pictures as it is the comments, which I find hilarious. They're terribly racist, but it's I'm entertained greatly by them. There was one um, one picture where the calories and rice podcast does not condone racism. No, no, we don't. Not at all. It's it's just it's really fascinating. I thought some of the things that were said. So that was my one. But there's I mean there's so it's it's not just the race. There are a lot of like actual salient comments that that are trying to process the identity of Chinese, especially as um, these other racial races and these other cultures are being intermixed with the Chinese race. And then some people that are just very honest about whether this is something that works for them or not. Incredibly fascinating, I thought. And then the other comment I pulled up, but I think I might save this one for when we do the interracial marriage. So I'm going to save that one, so never mind. I'm not going to make that recommendation. My next two recommendations are on the same issue. Um, this last weekend, Jane Goodall, famed anthropologist. Anthropologist? Pri Primatologist. Primatologist. Well, if we're all from monkeys, then it's the same thing, isn't it? I'm kidding. Um, acclaimed primatologist Jane Goodall, in an interview with AFP, made the statement that her exact words were, in Africa, China is merely doing what the colonialists did. They want raw materials for their economic growth, just as the colonialists were going to Africa and taking the natural resources, leaving people poor. And interestingly, in the AFP version of the article, they talk about what Dr. Goodall's been doing for the environment and saving the world, as well as her comments on China-Africa relations. But there is a response to that in a Chinese article from the Global Times where Wu Yi, I believe is the author, proceeds to express that um, he firmly disagrees and does not feel that the current permutation or the, the idea of China as as a colonialist in Africa is, is right. It's just a, di a different side of an interesting coin, I guess. But that was really fascinating to read both articles next to each other. Those would be my recommendations. 
fantastic. And then, and, and my recommendation, short and sweet, Who Says Chinese Cuisine Isn't Authentic and Sophisticated in Kenya by Susan Wong for Capital FM's Lifestyle Magazine. And basically talking about some good Chinese restaurants in, in Kenya and, and talking about how, you know, there's, there's some really good Chinese dishes and, you know, based on history and culture. Uh, but for, just for me, uh, a, a defense of Chinese food in Kenya, I thought was just really, really kind of fun. And, and I thought maybe you guys might have, like, known this person or been to any of these restaurants. I know I'm assuming. I'm sorry. There aren't that many restaurants uh, in in Nairobi that are not like frequented. I think quite quite often. Like, have I been to Double Dragon in Junction? Have you been to Double Dragon in in Utah? I have. Um, Is it? I, it, it's, I think it's not fat bad. How awesome it was. What's like that? The, little fat sheep. You know, Xiaopeng's. Oh, well, Xiao I love little fat sheep. Anyway. Yeah. Double Dragon was just, I took a big group of people there and we left a bit hungry because the portions are small. It was it was decent, but I don't actually think it's the most authentic Chinese food out there, anything like that. I will have to have Susan Wong on this podcast <laughs> and we'll formulate a definitive Chinese food guide to Nairobi. I, I actually, um, with one other Chinese guy in Nairobi, we, we had a personal mission to visit every Chinese restaurant, and obviously we never quite had the chance to, but there's a lot out there, and some really good ones, actually. <laughs> ah, future podcast. Yes, <laughs> we will discuss. All right, before we sign off, how do people find you on the interwebs? Do you have a website or a Twitter account that you would like to share with us? Loaded question. <laughs> How is that a loaded question? That that's not loaded at all. No, it's sort of like, oh man, did I tweet something really stupid? <laughs> like, I know. I was actually just oh, thinking oh. that. <laughs> oh, okay, never mind then. No, um, my Twitter handle is the troublemaker because I'm terrible and like one of my millennial generation, right? So it's uh, the and then T R B L M K R. What what do you tweet about? Mostly uh, interesting articles I find, like usually at the nexus of like kind of global development, but also stupid things like, you know, what's up with cronuts? <laughs> Sounds like my kind of Twitter feed. <laughs> okay. Um, Eugenia? I'm also on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is Eugenia Lee. So three E's rather than two. And I kind of just tweet also about things that I find amusing, talks I go to, uh, things about education and anthropology and international development. Perfect. And I believe I'm following both of you and I I Ivana on, on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am following you. All right, perfect. Just making sure. Dr. Kalu, how do people find you? I can be found on the Twitter sphere at NKMEKalu, and I blog infrequently. Very infrequently. <laughs> I, I apologize. <laughs> I blog infrequently at nkemkalu.wordpress.com and kauriesrights.blogspot.com. Anything up on the Twitter sphere for you this week? Yes. In the last 24 hours, I tweeted a lot of news. And I believe a comment on um, the comments by the French Prime Minister 
on uh, French president, my, my apologies, on not allowing Central African Republic to fall apart or, or secede or, well, I guess, break up into other countries. And my comment was no comment because I think that French politics in Africa is interesting. We should have an offline conversation about France Afrique. Uh, oh, dear Lord. Politics. Indeed. Yes, we're not <laughs> recording that. Yeah. We're moving on. And I can be found on also cowrysrice.blogspot.com where, gosh, I blog infrequently, except for the podcast. I don't blog all that much. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R. And I'm probably one of the top five China-Africa Twitter handles, uh, if I do say so myself. And yeah, a lot of it is China-Africa stuff. Some of it is not... Uh, some of it is China-related or Africa-related or not related to anything that you find interesting. Basically it. Uh, we would like to thank uh, Jules, Ivana, and Eugenia for joining us this morning and afternoon and evening from Senegal and Jordan and the U.S. We would like to thank African Development Jobs and the African Daily. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. BlackBerry, we've reached out to you when you're going to get back to us. We obviously want to reach more media platforms in the future, so if there's anything you recommend, let me know. We would also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song, and thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care. Take care.